Hello, I'm Roy Sharples, and welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you an industry expert looking for insights, growing your career, or are you a dear friend helping spur your old pal on? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to have the most inspiring conversations with creative industry personalities and experts about entrepreneurship, pop culture, art, music, film, and fashion. Professor Malcolm Garrett, MBE RDI, is a graphic designer who has mastered the art and science of creativity manifested through a diverse portfolio that spans four decades, creating landmark designs for musicians and bands, including The Buzzcocks, Duran Duran, Simple Minds, Boy George, Peter Gabriel, Oasis, Pulp, and numerous innovative digital projects for clients such as Apple, Virgin, Warner Brothers, Transport for London, Christian Aid, Design Manchester, and with publishing film and TV companies to reimagine their businesses through new media platforms and immersive technologies. Malcolm is currently creative director of the design consultancy Images & Co, founder and artistic director of the annual Design Manchester Festival. He was one of the first 10 designers to be inducted into the Design Week Hall of Fame in 2015. And in 2017, he was nominated as one of Creative Review's 50 creative leaders. He is an ambassador for Manchester School of Art, a BAFTA member, and a fellow of the Institute of Typographic Designers. In 2020, Malcolm was awarded an MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours for Services to Design. Hello and welcome, Malcolm. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank oh, you for inviting great, me. Great to hear that. Thank you. Malcolm, what inspired and attracted you into being a designer in the first place? That's a, that's a really tricky question to, to answer. Um, somebody asked me a similar question a couple of days ago, and it made me think quite hard about it. And Because and, he asked me, what was the first piece of graphic design I ever noticed? Well, given that I didn't really know the term graphic design until I was in my teens, you know, the answer could go two ways. Yeah. Um, but... The reality is I'd started to notice things that were designed, you know, from the age of about seven or eight onwards. Yeah. You know, I was uh, I was a Beatles fan. I grew up in the early 60s. The first single I bought was Hard Day's Night uh, by, by the Beatles. And the first film I went to see at the cinema was Hard Day's Night. So I was already a music fan, you know, a huge music fan very early on. And just all of the toys and the games that I played with as a child were quite visually orientated. They were quite constructive. You know, I played with, I don't know whether you had Lego over in the States um, or, or you had G.I. Joe, we called him Action Man. <laughs> and I was as much interested in in the graphics of the packaging and the uh, so the uniforms of the of the the soldiers and um the color of the bricks in lego you know bright red bright yeah. blue bright yellow so i was noticing designed things and i was beginning to notice architecture you know whether it was the medieval architecture that i saw in north wales near where i i grew up as a child on you know on summer vacations or or whether it was the the, the brand new buildings that were going up uh, you know throughout the uk you know the 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 tallest building in the uk the post office tower as it was known it was this is a round telecommunications 
Tower, not dissimilar to the Seattle Space Needle. Yes. Um, which was built in 1963 or 1964. And I was just mesmerized by that as a, as a piece of architecture. And I actually wanted to be, you know, I thought I was going to be, or I wanted to be an architect right up until the age of about 15 or 16, when I was taking, um, you know, the final high school exams before going to university. And uh, the art teacher pointed out that the kind of work that I was doing and the kind of things I was interested in, you know, and I was interested in record sleeve design even then. The art teacher said, Malcolm, you should look at graphic design. And and I said, what? What's graphic design? (laughs) And so so I'd I'd sort of grown up through, you know, you know, eight to ten years thinking about visual terms, but thinking about about designed things in the real world. And then that kind of turned back on looking at surface graphics and then yeah. looking at communications media. And, and lo and behold, I, you know, I went off to, to study graphic design and, um, and here we are now. <laughs> what does being a designer mean to you? Ooh, ooh being a designer, um, it, it sort of changed over the years. When I started out as a young designer then i was interested in making a mark if you like or or seeing producing things that looked the way i would like them to look or taking things that i liked from other areas you know whether you know other art movements or other design uh, uh other designers and reinterpreting those in the in the things that i created but as time has gone on um you know, your perspective on what you're doing changes, you know, and I now found myself, you know, it's 40 years on since, since I first started working in the music industry and the music industry is, is a youthful profession. Yes. You know, it's like, it's many people, you know, find themselves through identifying with the music and the musicians they like as a teenager. But, um, 40 years in on, I've, I've, I've probably found myself <laughs> um, and, and now I, I kind of relook at, okay, what does it mean now to be a designer? Well, what it means now is to encourage or try and support and help develop a world where design is, is better respected and more understood and support those young designers who were, who are like I was when I was their age. And so having set up, with with some some colleagues uh, having set up the Design Manchester Festival seven or eight years ago, then a big focus for us is reaching out to to students of design and young creatives at the beginnings of their careers and 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 giving them support and guidance and introducing them to to things that they might not know about or that we you know the, the, yes. the so, so using if you like my years of experience and and the people that I've met and the people that I admire and try to bring them to the festival and and inspire other young designers. So so in short, so being a designer has gone from creating things, I guess, to um, making a difference, trying to have an impact on on the design community. You know, as a designer, I am a communicator. Yes. The job of, of graphic design is to communicate. And so I, I have slowly and surely over the years taught taught myself how to do two things better than I used to do them. I'm not saying I'm good at them yet. And that is to try and write clearly and succinctly and say what I mean, which I sort of mastered 
<laughs> more quickly or, or, or earlier, shall I say, than what we're doing now. I'm now trying to master being able to speak clearly. And, and the biggest challenge I find that I have is actually just marshalling my thoughts yes. and trying to remember all of the things that might need saying in response to a question or in response to a situation, making sure I don't forget any of them and then yeah. putting them all in sequence. And, and I do actually still find it a challenge. I mean, a real challenge, but I guess when I'm talking about me yeah. <laughs> and, and my life, then theoretically I shouldn't get that wrong. <laughs> I, I should have all that information to hand. So, so it's, it's not quite as difficult when I'm talking about me. So uh, thank you for asking about me. Manchester um, has always been a, a fascinating hub when it comes to creative output in terms of mm -hmm. um, graphic designers, designers, musicians, um, actors, filmmakers, and so forth. And given it's the, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, do you feel that that's really contributed towards its creative ethos and also that maker-doer mentality and the, the strong attitude that comes out of the, the northwest of England as well? And has that impacted your view of the world um, and also your work? I absolutely think it has. And again, it's, it's taken me a while to come to an understanding of that, to actually realize it. Yeah. You know the old saying, you know, the, the, the last creatures to see the water are the fish. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you're surrounded by something, you don't notice it. You almost have to step outside in order right. to see yeah. it. And although my parents are actually from Liverpool, which is a different city altogether from Manchester. I mean, literally a different city. The, the, the social dynamics within those two cities, even though they're close to one another in yes. geographic terms, they're quite different from one another. Mm -hmm. But I grew, my parents moved out of Liverpool after the Second World War. And so I grew up closer to Manchester. I was born in mid Cheshire, uh, in, within Greater Manchester. And then I went to school and then university in Manchester. So, so I grew up through my formative years in Manchester. Manchester. And it's a weird thing. For a long time, I really took Manchester for granted. Yeah. I just thought that's how places are. I think the term in the States is vanilla. It seemed yes. like a vanilla city. And and so I moved to London and, I, and I've, you know, done some traveling around the world as a professional. You know, people have invited me to conferences and, yeah. and we've had international clients. So I've done some traveling around the world. And it, and it took me quite a while to realize, to come back and realize and look more closely at that city that I'd grown up in and realize actually either how little I knew about it or, or where I had holes in my, yes. in my understanding of, of the city and its history and where I took things for granted. And I eventually came to a real understanding of the city and of, of what it stood for and why its people were the way they, way they are and how I fitted into that. So, yes, I mean, I think it's had a huge influence on me. There's a kind of solidity to Manchester, a, a sort of pragmatic, get on with it, yes. let's do it. A sense of, of the celebration of the ordinariness of mm. it, which if you're not noticing it, it can come over as a sort of ordinary, but a better word is natural. It's a natural environment. And yeah, that that's that attitude that actually we're, we're yeah we're ordinary and natural in in Manchester, but but we're also quite special. 
Yeah. You know, we do have that heritage, as you say, you know, the original industrial city. Manchester itself doesn't have a huge, you know, unlike most cities in the UK have a, a, a heritage and a history that goes back hundreds of years. Yes. You know, another city that's close by is Chester, you know, and, th- and that was built in Roman times. That's, that's you know, 1500 years ago. But Manchester, if you go, go back only as far as 200 or 250 years, there wasn't a Manchester. Hmm. It sort of grew out of its location on the the uh, the edges of a, ma- a range of mountains called the Pennines, which supplied water to supply the steam engines and the water powers and the canals, which built the Industrial Revolution. So Manchester literally grew out of nothing and didn't have that that medieval or Roman uh, heritage at all. And that does give it a, a sense of of you know the people that kind of just get on with stuff and just feel they have an inner confidence that if you want to make it, you can make it. Yeah. And and that's just sort of built in to the people who, who come from Manchester. There's a certain melancholy within industrial towns such as Manchester, Glasgow, Detroit, and that melancholy inspires creativity and it fuels the genius of, of people with extraordinary intellectual ability, mental toughness, grit, creative productivity, and it instills some insatiable drive for, for self-actualization. Your earlier point about being inside of somewhere and not being able to see it for what it is, and it's not until you come out of there and you look back and your aperture just seems to be that much more clearer and you can really pay attention to the things that really did matter that was maybe ingrained and you maybe took for for granted somewhat. And I think that is a nod towards the, the, the general human condition in that most people can get used to things too quickly. You know, when you first arrive somewhere, you notice all the little details, such as the design of buildings, the color of the sky, the, the streets, the fashion, the cars, the smells, and the way people look. And then as you get used to that new place, you usually don't notice those details anymore. So sometimes by coming out of somewhere um, and then going back to it, you can kind of get that same kind of sensation or you can see it for, for what it is. How do you make the invisible visible through coming up with ideas, developing those ideas into concepts, implementing those concepts into actualization? <laughs> you're you're asking me uh, you're asking me a question that takes forty years to answer yes. <laughs> to answer in 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 four minutes, <laughs> and and I think if you ask any creative where they get ideas from, they'll just say they'll throw their hands up in the air and go, "I don't know." They just come, and um, I'm going to name drop now. I, I recently had a conversation with Brian Eno, one of my one of my all time heroes, and we were talking about a similar thing. And what came out of that conversation is we both had this view that if you wanted to have an idea, don't try and think of it. Don't try and find an idea. Go and do something else, and the idea will find you. So when I'm first given a, you know a new brief or a new challenge or a new project my first response 
response used to be to sort of panic and go, oh my God, I've no idea what to do about this. And so, you know, as you know, in my twenties, I kind of thought, oh my God, I hope I don't ever run out of ideas. And of course, you, you, you know, you do it year on year and you realize yeah. you don't actually run out of ideas. You may not have, have as good ideas as you would like, or and you may not have good ideas all of the time, but you do have ideas and you do have ways ways of approaching it. One of the things I do do is is I quite consciously think twice and act once. So I try and I work things out in my head rather than working them out on paper or even on on computer now, uh, which is good because I think like many people or many creatives certainly you wake up in the middle of the night. If you wake up at 4am, you can't get back to sleep and you're, uh, and you're just worrying about all the things you've got to do the next day and all the things you don't have answers to and all the things that, that people are going to problems that people are going to send to you that uh, lying in bed at 4am in the morning, you can't address. So I have two kind of ways of, of, of dealing with that. Way number one is just to get up and read a book. Um, and, and reading a book at night has become Pavlovian. I can't read more than a page or more than half a page before I go back to sleep again. So that's one approach. But the other approach is actually just to lie there and think about the problem and remind myself that actually, whilst I'm there lying in bed thinking, I'm working. So I don't have to feel guilty about not getting up. You know, I, I, I've learned that as I'm thinking about a problem or as I'm kind of, you know, turning it over in my yes. mind, I'm at work. And then when I do get up or when I do sit down at the drawing board or at the computer and pick up a pencil and start writing or start drawing, then I will have worked out one or more good starting points. And it's a snowball effect or, you know, a domino effect. Once you start making marks, then on paper, once you start doing that, you keep on doing it yeah. and you keep on refining and you keep on or going off at tangents. So there, there are two stages, if you like, to, to the process. One is to think a lot about the problem whilst going to do something else, you know, go to a football match or go yeah. to the cinema or do something else and have this in the back of your mind. And then weird connections start to be made. Then the second thing is just sit down and start drawing. <laughs> yeah. Because once you start drawing, all of those things you thought about start to influence the directions your drawings take. So, so I'm not quite sure if that was, if that's advice you can pass on to people. Um, it works for me, you know, and and yeah. and it, I think it, it does work for for many creatives. They do, you know. The <laughs> commonest answer I've heard uh, to you know, where do ideas come from? It's like no bloody idea. Out of those two parts of your process, there, a large part of it is about the manifestation of how you feel inside, but also the things that you observe in everyday life, like you say, go to a football game or something, and then correlate that, or by going yes. so far away from the domain, it gives you clarity about the domain. Um, yeah. It's 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 all about make, making connection. Yes, I mean I, I've I've kind of learned that that I'm not so much as a, a designer as a connector. Mm. You know, I I connect people to information, or I connect people to people, or or I you know I I connect things. And if you look at many of my design solutions or my design work over the years, quite often you'll see a combination of two or more seemingly disconnected ideas or thoughts that seem to me that you can bring them together yeah. to create a third 
thing. Uh, and, and, and making those connections, I think, is, is, is what it's all about. And to go back to your previous question, you know, design for me is now in, you know, in my, the start of my career, it was trying to connect me and my ideas to the world because yes. I felt, you know, as, as a young designer, I had things to say. But but later in, in life now, it's it's about helping to connect other people, yeah. and, you know, and connect designers to one another, to connect clients to, to designers, and to connect, um, just to make all sorts of connections between professionals and young designers and vice versa. Uh, and, and, and that's the beauty of, of having 40 years of experience is there are, there are many connections that I can now make. You know, I, I, I've got, if you like, a, a wealth of potential yeah. that, that I can help realize. Uh, and, um, and that's what I try to do. What are the key skills needed to be a designer? Uh, well, it very obviously it sort of varies, but I but at the bottom line, I think is empathy. Yeah, is is understanding why you're doing something, and and I've I've come to understand more that that what I do is never my work. If you are designing, you are if you are a graphic designer, you are by default trying to say something for somebody else to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, and even if it's just a simple, you know, information sign, you're still trying to convey the information that, that, you know, belongs in that environment to the people that need to see it, need to read it. Um, or if you, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're designing a record sleeve, you're trying to convey the, the, the sense of the music that that's within or the attitude and, and voice. Yeah of the musicians and you're trying to, to translate that and connect that directly to an audience that, that wants to hear it or doesn't yet know that they want to hear it. And so the better that you do your job, in my view, the more invisible you as a designer becomes. Because if you see the design, then that's interrupting the communications process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Communication just ha has to work without thought. <laughs> so actually, you, you mentioned the phrase "making the invisible visible." In a way, I'm keeping the invisible invisible, invisible yes. and, and making trying to make connections. And if those connections are cerebral, then, for instance, if I say to you, "Dark side of the moon," what do you see? Light refracting from a triangular prism upon a black sleeve. That visual yeah. um, icon. Yeah. And it, just the words "dark side of the moon," yes. they're they're indelibly interlinked. Yes, and that's what the designer does. The designer doesn't draw a triangle with light rays going through it. The designer creates something that represents something else, yes. something beyond its own. But it's, it also, to a degree, it remains invisible, or it re, re, it remains unnoticed. I guess yeah. it just it it just becomes uh, implicit. If you were eighteen again now, and you know what you do today, what would you do differently, if at all, anything? Oh, that's that, oh, God, Roy, that's a terrible <laughs> question. <laughs> uh, 
And most people say, oh, I would, I would do it all in the same. Exactly. Yeah. And, and in a way, I would, I would answer the same thing, I guess. Um, I can think of things that, that um, you know, details in my life where it's like, oh, God, if only I'd done that better or if only I'd spotted that at the time yeah. or if only I'd said that thing to that person that you know your life is littered with with those things but I've been very very instinctive uh, and, and um, I woke up in the middle of the night quite recently thinking about ambition don't ask me why I was just thinking about ambition Possibly somebody had kind of indicated, you know, suggested that I was an ambitious person because, you know, I am where I am. You wouldn't yeah. be interviewing me here today if I was not where I am. Yeah. And so, so the, the inference is that I'm a very ambitious person to get to where I'm going. But actually, I'm not ambitious at all. If you ask me what I'm going to do tomorrow, I'll go, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. And, and, I, and that's one of the beauties of being a graphic designer is that you don't really know who's going to walk through the door tomorrow and ask you to do something. Yes. It's going to ask you to help them to communicate something. You know roughly the type of thing that you known for, you've become known for doing. So you know roughly the type of thing you will be asked. But you have no idea what it will be, yeah. uh, who it will be asking, and, and to whom it's going to be addressed. And that's always, that's always been my attitude is that I just expected something would come along that I would be interested in because at no point in my life have I ever had more things to do or that I would like to do than there are hours in the day to do them. Yeah. So my life has never, never been spent planning and thinking, oh, my God, how am I, you know, what shall I do tomorrow? My life has always been, been a question of how the hell am I going to get all this done and in what order should I do things? And, and, and I work instinctively. There's no, no five-year plan for Malcolm Garrett. Yeah. There's a, there's a five minute plan. You know, do I have time to make another cup of coffee before I sit down and finish this piece of work? You know, yeah. that's about as far as I get with my planning because I just did things as they came up and responded and made myself available to do things. Then I can't possibly have done anything differently yeah. because that's always what I would have done. Different things may have happened to me or different things may have presented themselves to me. But I think, you know, I would have I would have been there responding in the same kind of way yeah. and, and trying to make trying to make the most of what opportunities presented themselves. I love the instinctive side of things. And it sounds as well as you've just been someone that's been guided by that and your passion, your heart, your how you feel, how you engage. Your other point as well earlier around, well, it's not earlier, you've, it's been consistent throughout the conversation is your ability to, to see patterns in clouds and to make connections and see the relationships mm -hmm. between different things. It's funny because, uh, you know, as I say, I've, I've always been instinctive, but I'm only now thinking analytically about that. You know, you start, yes. you do start to think back on your life and how and what you did, you know, you know how you went about things. And I'm realizing now that I was instinctive, but I kind of, I probably didn't think, <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't notice that, you know, as a, as a 20 year old, yeah. I just was instinctive rather than I thought, oh, I'm acting in instinctively. Um, yeah. Now I can kind of look back and go, that's why I did things because somebody asked a question and I put my hand up to give an answer. 
<laughs> had the question not been asked, then I might have done something else. But I always put myself, I tried to put myself in the frame. You know, people said, oh, Malcolm, you were so lucky. You got to work with, with a band like Buzzcocks when, when you were, you know, still at college. Well, yeah, I was lucky. You know, things happened. Uh, but um, there were, you know, 40 or 50 other students in my yeah. class who could have been just as lucky as me, yeah. but they weren't. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't go out and, and seize something, you know, take something, see something that, that inspired them and then get involved. Yeah. And so, so you do make your own look in that regard. Underpinning all of that is the, having the, the talent to deliver. You know, one of the things that you also have with hindsight is, is that you look back and, and you think, how on earth did I get away with doing that so bad? <laughs> and, and you do really become hypercritical of your work. But the good thing is, is that people only choose to remember the, the things that, that actually, you know, were quite good. Yeah. And, 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 and the many things that weren't as good as that get forgotten. Or, or get pushed by the because they were you know because they weren't good they weren't successful so they get they they get forgotten but um I, I did have to learn how to harness my talent and I had to learn what it was I was talented at so so at some points I did think I could I could do all of the things that I, that I thought of uh, and then I realized actually there are better photographers than me there are better illustrators than me there are there are people who can do the things that that I thought about in my head, you know, when I was lying in bed, you know, thinking of those solutions, there are people out there who can do the things that I thought of better than I can do. And it's, and it's taken me a while to, to, to realize that and to be able to put myself in a, in, in a position to both try and find people to work with who can do those things that I've thought of and do them better, but also give them space to, to develop them and make them better. Yeah. But, in parallel to that, try and work out, well, what is it that I am quite good at? And let's try and refine that. Never to the point of, of you know, I never be wanted to be known for being able to do one thing. So many successful artists or designers, you can see their hand. You can see the, see the way they make marks. The danger is you see the designer before you see the design. Yes. And, and I never wanted to, to, to be like that. I never wanted to have a style, if you like. Inevitably, you do. You know, you have you have a way of thinking, a way of doing things. But I never wanted to rest on that particular set of laurels and and hone hone a craft to the point that that I get hired just to do that thing. Yeah, I always wanted to be hired to be for my thinking and my attitude, rather than be hired for you know the the, the quality of the of the paintbrush marks yes. I can make on paper. What's your yeah. vision for the future of design? The, the only thing I know, I know for certain about predicting the future is that whatever you predict will be the one thing that doesn't happen. Uh, because because it, the reality is the, f the future is made by other people and by other circumstances. And, and, it's, and it's made by accidents and it's made by things that are unpredictable it's made by people connecting things in ways that 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 you haven't thought of um so what's going to happen i don't know i mean i 
I'm sure design can play a role. Uh, and, 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 you know, I'd like to see what, what Extinction Rebellion, for instance, are doing with design and, and in, in, a, in a way making the, 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 the graphic design of Rebellion more corporate in a way, corporate yes. and inverted commas. Yeah. Uh, but more sophisticated, I suppose, is a better word than corporate because for a long time, protest graphics were, were rough and ready and DIY, you know, and, and I grew up through that with, with punk and the counterculture. Um, the graphic design of Rebellion w- was was quite street and it was quite rough and it's quite hard-edged. And what Extinction Rebellion are doing is much more sophisticated. It's, it's, it's appealing to or using the tools of, of a sophisticated design world to speak to, a, to an audience that, that, is, that is, recognizes sophisticated imagery. So that's one thing I see happen, and and I mention that because um, we're living in, we're living through, and it's, things are looking like they're getting worse. You know, the, you know, just looking at the way things are happening uh, in in the, over in the United States. You know, the, the the view from here doesn't look healthy. You know, the, uh, the we're all worried about the the outcome of of your presidential elections. And we're worried about, uh, here in the UK, we're desperately worried about what's happening with a patently corrupt and self-serving government that somehow got into power that are tearing up laws and rules and and using their power to, to basically rape the country. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the scary thing, I guess, is so much of the enabling of things that are happening behind the scenes and happening invisibly or, or the clarity of what's happening isn't isn't apparent to, to much of the population is from the monitoring and manipulation of data from social media use and the way that you can now target very specific and misleading pockets of information to small, uh, you know, even down to the individual. Yes. You know, not just groups of people, but to the individual. That, that with power, that with the power and the control of what seem to be on the... Uncontrolled or uncontrollable media channels being used to subvert democracy. I'm sort of scared about what's happening. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen a, a film called The Social Dilemma. I watched it a couple of weeks ago. It's just come out, and it, it interviews a lot of a lot of people who have uh, high-ranking positions at Facebook. And yeah. software is designed. You know, somebody sits yeah. down and creates a piece of software to do something, and design is being used for scary purposes at yes. the moment, which, are, which I predict um, severe social unrest in the Western world. If the free world is no longer free. So, yeah, how that's precisely how things are going to pan out, I don't know. I, I don't know anybody who is not concerned and worried about it. Yeah, it's tentative times. Yeah. What's the, the single most thing that you're most proud of from the work that you've kind of produced? What was the first thing that came to your mind there as I asked that question? <laughs> well, the first thing that came to mind was like, "Oh, are you going to ask me about a particular? What's my favorite record sleeve?" And and then it then it moved to, "What are you most proud of?" <laughs> well, well, I think what I'm most proud of is is what I'm doing now. It is and what I'm doing now. I help set up a platform in Manchester called Design Manchester. Yes, which was intended to be a one day's event 
for effectively the students of Manchester School of Art to celebrate the Manchester School of Art's 175th anniversary because it's the oldest school of uh, undergraduate school of art in in the UK. It's one year younger than the Royal College of Art, uh, which is postgraduate only, which makes Manchester the oldest undergraduate. And... um, you know, I, I'm an alumnus of the Manchester School of Art, and I, and I worked with the, with the dean, uh, David Crow, as he was. You know, he was the dean then, and he's now moved on. But but we worked together, and we put on an event to celebrate that. And the event was was a, a conference, which I think we had about 300 students, mainly students, attend. And we put it on in the, the town hall so that we could remind the city council who were based in the town hall that design and design education were uh, fundamental to the economic and social prosperity of the city. And that event was so successful, and we enjoyed doing it, that we did another one the next year. And it grew over seven years until last year it grew uh, from that one afternoon's event to last year we, we had over 70 events in 30 or more venues across the city. And the festival lasted for, for almost two weeks. And so I'm, what I'm proud of is, to, is working with other people. I didn't do it myself, but, yeah. but, you know, I put everything that I had, I was able to into it. We created a platform to celebrate design in Manchester, for Manchester, but also for the world, to both connect Manchester to the world and to collect the world to Manchester through design and celebrate design from primary school age up to third age. Uh, and, um, you know, with, with a, with no one focus, you know, w- our focus was, was commercial. It was, you know, is for uh, supporting the business community. It's educational at all levels. It's uh, political uh, and, and it's social yeah. and, and, the role I've been able to play in establishing Design Manchester is probably the achievement I'm, I'm proudest of. This year, we're really struggling for all of the obvious reasons yes. with, with the, 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 the pandemic. And it's less than four weeks to this year's uh, festival, DM20, takes place. Here's a plug. It takes place the weekend of November the 12th to the 16th. But what we've done, what we've managed to do is because we can't have have any physical events, all our events are online, of course, but we've used our opportunity. We always saw ourselves as part of an international uh, community and our events are now connecting. We're we're connecting with Dutch Design Week in Eindhoven. We're connecting with Barcelona Design Festival in Spain. We're connecting with design festivals, other design festivals in the UK, with, with Birmingham Design Festival. And we're, we are putting on, if you put, if you have an online event, then you don't have the physical restrictions. So, so if you haven't got physical restrictions, then you can be international. And so, so being able to, to put on, uh, on a workshop for 300 students in six European cities is a kind of, uh, you know, that's a step towards what we'd like to be able to do in the future is, um, utilize the new digital tools in good ways to communicate in in uh, positive and helpful socially sound ways so yeah great my, my proudest achievement is being part of building design manchester because it's 
it is genuinely uh, about design and it's about how design can and does impact pretty much every life on the planet in some way. Just when you thought you were going to get off with it, Malcolm, what is the favorite record sleeve that you've designed and why? Oh, oh, oh. Um, it sort of varies from time to time and I have different favorites for different reasons. Yeah. But I think one of the ones that, um, the first record sleeve I designed that was totally mine, I, I hadn't worked with, with other people. Yeah. Um, or other design. When it's, it's like, even that's not true. I worked with Richard Boone, the manager of Buzzcocks, and, and we yeah. worked things together. But but and, and out of something he said, which he doesn't remember, but he said something which gave me the idea for the single sleeve for what do I get? Yeah. I think is is Pete Shelley's finest pop song. Yeah. I think his finest song is I Believe, which is on this is on the third album, a different kind of tension. But the sleeve for what do I get? is so stupidly simple that I still love it. It's just two shades of green. One of the things I like about it is, is it, it, it is deceptively simple. It looks like there isn't an idea there, that, you know, it's just like, yeah. oh, you just done it half green and half green. But actually, I can, <laughs> in another podcast, I, I could I could give you a five-minute five explanation of how that design was arrived at. Thank you so much for the inspired conversation, Malcolm. No, I've enjoyed this conversation, right? It's been fantastic. To keep current with Malcolm, check him out on social media and his website. Twitter at Malcolm Garrett, Instagram at Being Malcolm Garrett, and his website is MalcolmGarrett.com. And also for Design Manchester, it's DesignMCR.com. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate, and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening.